just for the sake of the recording. We're starting in 1 John chapter 4. There's a lot of books in the Bible that have very specific themes, right? So in 1 John, most people, they hear 1 John, they immediately think love. It's a book of love. They think about a subject like grace, and they think Romans. Romans is a good book about grace. It talks about the uh, faith and, and grace and how they play into your salvation. Um, and there, there are other books you think about. Uh, the book of John itself, the Gospel of John, that's, that's a book that, that's there to help us have faith and believe as written in the, at the end of the book. But uh, as I mentioned, this book is about love uh, very specifically. <clears throat> but John gives several different reasons as to why he writes this book, not specifically just so that we'll know how to love or whatever. First John chapter 1, verse 3 says, uh, that's not chapter 1, okay. Um, first John, that's, that's second John, sorry. First John chapter 1 and verse 3, he says, what we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. So he's writing this thing in order to proclaim to these people that they may have fellowship with us. And I'm, I'm assuming by us he means the apostles. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. So he's writing this book so that they may not sin. And then chapter 5 and verse 13, he says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And I think that he writes all these things so that they may know, so that they may have fellowship with the apostles or fellowship with the believers that they may not sin in the context of love. Um, so I've kind of had this thought in my head. Uh, we just studied First John not too long ago at a, like a college class. And we came up on one verse in First John chapter 4, and there's this phrase in, in this verse that I've had kind of turning around in my head for a long time. So First John 4, 18, he says, There is no fear in love but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love and I think this is a very very weird phrase maybe in my mind one of the most controversial phrases in the whole Bible there is no fear in love so think about that for a second have you ever loved somebody before yeah uh, trusted somebody with your life, with, with your deepest secrets? Have you ever had somebody break your heart? And uh, I have, and I'm sure most people probably have. you ever had anybody break your trust or reveal one of your secrets to somebody else without you telling them? So I kind of want to talk about this phrase, what it means, there's no fear in love. Because I think love is something that's kind of scary. You give yourself to somebody... And uh, they have the ability to take it and either stomp on your heart or they have the ability to hold your heart and cherish it and lock it away or whatever. Um, so I, I kind of want to talk about this, this controversial phrase. What does it mean there is no fear in love? Um, it's, it's hard to give up your heart and your trust and your secrets because there's always somebody there, it seems like, that will take it away from you and stomp it. But this is kind of totally contradictory to a lot of the things that the Bible has already said about fear, right? Fear is a good thing in the context of most of the Bible. Uh, 
we'll flip to you want you might want to put your marker there first John four but we'll flip back to the book of Proverbs really quick uh, Proverbs chapter nine. Verse 10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So there's this, the fear is a good thing because this is how you become wise. This is the beginning of, of becoming wise. Go over a, just a page, or maybe on the same page, chapter 10, verse 27, Proverbs. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. Now, I don't necessarily know what that means, the fear of the Lord prolongs life. Maybe that means that if you fear God, he'll just let you live a long time. It may be more associated with this wisdom. If you do wise things, then you are probably going to live longer instead of doing foolish things, right? Uh, Chapter 14, verse 27 of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, that one may avoid the snares of death. So... Fear is this fountain of life that allows you to stay away from death. Uh, 15, verse 33, Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom, and before honor comes humility. So in order to be even instructed in becoming wise, you have to fear God. And then finally, uh, uh, verse 6 of chapter 16, Proverbs. By loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. So in order to stay away from evil, you have to fear God. Maybe that's in the in the context of thinking about his punishment, as was mentioned in 1 John 4. Fear involves punishment. Or maybe it's just out of respect for God. I don't know. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13 says, uh, Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole man, or this is the, the, this is the whole of man, or this is the whole duty of man. Man was created such that he would fear God. That was the whole purpose of of man Uh, Isaiah chapter 66 um, verses 1 and 2 thus says the Lord heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool where then is a house that you could build for me and where is a place that I may rest so God is is looking around for a place where he can, can dwell Verse 2, he says, For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to this one being a person, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. A little different word there, trembles instead of fear. But fear is this beacon. It's a beacon to God, like here's a place where you can dwell. It's within me. Uh, And this this is kind of contradictory a little bit to what is... The people thought in the Old Testament that God was restricted to this place in the tabernacle or in the temple. But in Isaiah 66, I think this is a prophecy of what there is to come. People who fear him, this is going to be a place where God dwells in the hearts of men. And then a New Testament passage, one more. uh, Philippians chapter 2. Think about the book of Philippians. The first thing you think is joy. Is there really any fear in joy? Uh, Maybe so. Philippians chapter 2, verses uh, 9 through 13. For this reason also God, God highly exalted him, that's Jesus, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow 
of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with, both of these words we saw earlier, with fear and trembling. The joy of seeing Christ as he comes back and, and every knee will bow before him, every tongue will confess. So you have this responsibility to work out your salvation so that you might be able to participate in this joy through fear and trembling. So fear is kind of an important thing in the Bible, but it's, I don't think it's contradictory to what's actually written in 1 John 4. There's no fear in love. So things it could mean. Um, maybe, it should, maybe it means that uh, you should never be scared to love anybody. I don't know if that's necessarily what that means. So maybe you should never be afraid to have your heart broken or have somebody break your trust or be afraid of how somebody might treat you. Uh, Maybe you should never be scared to love. Or maybe it means you should never be scared of the person that you love. You know, be afraid that they'll attack you or uh, that they'll turn their back on you or something like that. I'm not sure that means either of those things or one of them or both of them. But John specifically, I think, in chapter 4 is talking about love of God and love for God. So, um, as we go back now to 1 John 4, we'll spend pretty much the rest of the time here. Uh, so I think he breaks this this up uh, from verses uh, 7 forward to the end of the chapter into several different sections. And in order to actually love other people and be able to not, uh, I guess, not have fear when we love. He breaks us up so that we might be able to understand how love works and what love is and what our responsibilities are in this type of love he's speaking of. So verses 7 and 8, I think John uh, kind of uses this, uh, or he, he, he would call this section understanding love. First uh, John 4 verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. So the first key, I think, to actually being able to love without fear is to understand where love comes from, this type of love. It comes from God, and we can trust Him, and we know that He's not ever going to break us or stomp on our hearts or whatever. Love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So, um, in order to really understand what love is, We have a responsibility, I think it shows here. Everyone who loves is born of God and he knows God. So we have this responsibility to be born of God. What does that mean? Well, we'll talk about it later at the end of the lesson. But in order to love really truly, we have to be born of God. And then secondly, we have to actually know God. I don't mean know of God. I mean actually know God uh, through an intimate understanding of his will for us and through an intimate understanding of his scriptures. So, uh, verse 8. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So if we find it hard to love other people, maybe that's a good indication that we need to take a long look in the mirror and examine ourselves. Do we really know God if we find it hard to love other people? That's what John says right here. The one who does not love doesn't know God. So we have this very, very strong um, responsibility to know God. So 
We have to understand love first in order to not have fear in love. This next section, verses 9 and 10, I would say is manifesting love. What does love actually look like? Uh, verse 9. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. So love was manifest that God has sent His only begotten Son in the world. What love really looks like is to take the one thing you love most and to give it to somebody you know is going to break it. You ever think about it like that? It's like you have something that's really, really precious to you, right? You have a maybe a vase or a picture or Maybe it's your money, I don't know. And you're willing to give it up to somebody that's going to take it and they're going to crush it or they're going to spin it in a way that you know you would not ever do it, right? Um, that's how love is manifest, at least with God. His only son, he gave for us. And he gave him to us in a way that he was just willingly going to give it to people so that they might actually do those things that I mentioned. You know, hang him on a tree and spit in his face and wag their heads at him. You know, strike his back and, and rip his flesh and strip him naked just for everybody to, to see. Love is manifest in that way, truly manifest in giving up one thing that you love most so that somebody else might even be able to abuse it. Verse 10, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for us. In sin, we sold ourselves to Satan. We gave ourselves over in slavery to be enslaved to someone who's going to take us and just trash us, take our souls and cast it into a, a, a dark pit and make us do His will in everything that we do. And this word propitiation means to, to, to satisfy or to, to come back into good, good standing with, I guess. I like, the, I like the word redeem better, but it's, it's not the word that's used here. But redeeming is this idea that we actually sold ourselves into slavery. And God was willing to come up to us and say, you know what, I know you sold yourself to be the slave sin, slave of Satan. But I'm going to take, I'm going to give you whatever it takes in order to buy this guy back. Whatever price that he had to, that, you know, he needs to pay you, I'll give it in order to buy him back. So love is manifested in that you're willing to buy back something that's, that's broken and in slavery to someone else that doesn't do your will. Okay, so moving forward, verse 11 now. I think this section is about reciprocating love. Now that we understand what love looks like, what God, the, the love that God has shown for us, and how he's manifested it to us, how do we reciprocate it? How do we actually act out the same things that he's done to us? If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So there's going to be people in this world. We can't, I mean, we can love God and, and say we love God, but if we don't love other people, how can we actually know? How do, 
we, we have to see how people love one another. So after we were bought back, we're commanded to show the same love that God showed toward us, to be willing to give up whatever it takes, even if we know that people are going to mistreat it or, or break it or whatever. We have to be willing to love people to the point that we're willing to do the same thing that God did. <clears throat> Verse 12. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. So, this is a good verse for us. We've never actually seen God. I mean, it says no one has seen God at any time. John talks about seeing seeing God in the beginning of the book, I guess, in the form of Jesus himself. But no one, no one has actually seen God at any time. But the thing about this book is we can see the love of God and the things that God does for us without ever having to actually see him face to face. Um, so you ever tried to do something before that um, someone never showed you how to do, I guess? Like, you ever tried to, I, know, I was talking with Jenny about this last night, it's like you ever tried to pay a bill online, but somebody's never showed you how to actually pay a bill online? It's kind of hard to figure that out, right? But if you see it, it's a lot easier to do it. One thing that's really good about this book is that we don't ever actually have to see it with our own physical eyes. We can read about it and see how people gave themselves up in the past <clears throat> in order to do these things. Okay. Um, so there's another interesting phrase here in this verse. His love is perfected in us, verse 12. Um, his love is perfected in us. That kind of implies that there was some point where God's love wasn't perfect. I think. Maybe. Um, so just bear with me for a minute. If I lose you, I'm sorry. We'll talk about it later. His love was perfected in us. What does that mean? God's love wasn't perfect? I don't, I don't necessarily know, but God's love became perfect whenever we could reciprocate it. Whenever God could come into us and we could be able to show love to other people the same type of love that He showed toward us, that was when it was perfected. It doesn't do much good if you tell somebody how to do something or even show somebody how to do something and they can't do it. But when they can, you know that what you've told them has become perfect. Right? Does that make sense? His love was perfected in us. So if we can see uh, how other godly people love us, we've essentially seen the character of God, and we've been able to see how His love was perfected in those people, and we can do the same thing. Okay, verse 13. By this... We know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. Um, so I like to think about this verse kind of in the context of Acts chapter 2. Uh, when we're told when Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost and he says, Repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins and then you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
Um, I think there's a lot of misconceptions out there about what this means to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's some kind of magical thing that happens and you're able to do this really cool stuff like bring people back from the dead or speak in tongues or um, some of these other, or prophesy or whatever, some of these other magical things. I don't necessarily know what that means, know that that's what that is. But I, I think this kind of gives clarity to what this gift of the Holy Spirit is in Acts 2. When he says, by this we know that we abide in him, he and us, because he's given us of his spirit. What this gift of the Holy Spirit is, is God actually coming into us and living and dwelling within us, I think. Um, so, um, when God actually comes into us, I think that's when we can really learn to love and then at the same time actually partake uh, in this character that God has, this, this loving character of God. Okay, um, so this next section I think John talks about is confirming, uh, confirming love. So John says, we have seen and testified that the Father, I think the we there is, is the apostles, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. John says that he literally saw this love in the world for himself when he saw Jesus, and we can trust in his witness. So now, um, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So this is what I mean by confirming love. If we show love towards somebody else, we have a responsibility to tell other people where that love came from. And I think that's what John says here in verse 15. He says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. So uh, as we see this now, loving one another, God abides in us, and that confessing Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in us. I don't think those two things are, are mutually exclusive. I think you have to do both for God to abide in you. Um, so you have to actually love other people, and you have to actually confess that Jesus is the source of the love that you show toward other people. <clears throat> okay. In verse 16, uh, we've come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. I think it just sums up basically everything I just said there. So, uh, understanding love, uh, manifesting love in these sections, reciprocating love, and now we have uh, confirming this love that God has shown toward us. And then finally, uh, this last section is perfecting love. What does it look like when love becomes perfect? By this, love is perfected with us, verse 17, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. Love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. So this is, I think, the key to what it means there when we're talking about this phrase, there's no fear in love. Um, when you're going before judgment, there's always this sense, you think, you're standing in a courtroom, right, civil court or something, and somebody has accused you of something, but you know you didn't do it. There's always maybe this fear that somebody's going to listen to the other side. And you're going to be accused and charged. Um, but love is perfected when we can approach this courtroom 
and stand there and know that we didn't do it and there's no way there's no one that can accuse us of whatever crime we've committed or whatever and send us off or charge us so love is perfected when we can actually approach God's throne boldly and say I've loved other people and I've loved you and then you imagine this court right Satan standing over the court well he did this and this and this and this God says no I don't know he did these two things he doesn't have to be scared of you. So, we get back to this main phrase. Um, there's no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment. And the one who is... And the one who fears is not perfected in love. So now, here's the, I guess, mostly my final thoughts uh, Fear has no place in the love God has shown toward us. So when God showed us love, I don't think he was ever scared of it. Because he knew in the beginning that we were going to take the one gift he had for us and we were going to break it. We were going to throw it away and stomp on it. But he wasn't scared of it. Um, And throughout the whole Bible, it's the same story that's been told over and over and over. Man broke the perfect world that God created when he sinned. And then God came back into the world and said, I'm going to give you a law, and if you follow this law, you can be like me. And man said, you know what? I'd rather not. So if they're not going to do it this way, then I'll give up the one thing so that they can become like me. It wasn't perfect in that way. But God's promises throughout the Old Testament all the way into the New Testament have never failed. They've never failed. So we don't ever have to fear whenever we love God or love other people because we know that God's promises have always stood true and they're always going to stand true. Fear is one thing, at least in love, that exposes a weakness. Maybe this weakness is that we don't believe God has done sufficiently enough to cover our sins. You know, maybe I've been guilty of, of lying and gossip, or maybe I've been guilty of murder, or maybe I've been guilty of, of lust and, and all these other things. And I've done it so much, so many times, that there's no way can God that God can actually cover this. And if you're fearful of that, your love is not perfected. But you don't have to fear because it's covered. And he says it's covered. And you don't have to fear in that. It doesn't matter what Satan says over in this corner of the courtroom. He can't accuse you because it's already been paid. And then finally, uh, if God says that he abides in us, uh, we have nothing to fear of him or of other people. Um, People can take our family. They can take our stuff. They can take our job, or they can take our kids, or they can take our life. But they can't take the love of God away from us. Um, And as a result of that, if they can't take that away from us, then they can't take our love away from Him. 
if we continue to do that. So fear can be a good thing. We've seen that earlier when we read the Proverbs and Isaiah when we read Philippians 2. Fear can be a good thing. Fear is the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of wisdom. It's our instruction for wisdom. It's our whole duty as a creation toward God in order to fear Him. And fear is this beacon we saw uh, in Isaiah that, it's, that shows God where His people are, that He can come and dwell with them. However, fear has no place in love because God has been faithful to us. So we don't have to fear of anything. The same story, as I mentioned, has been told for thousands of years. Messiah would come, and He did. While He was here, He taught the same thing that has been taught for thousands of years. And then He led us on this journey of love the understanding that people might be able to take his life or take his family or whatever, but they can't take his love away from other people. And then the apostles told the same story, confirming that love, as I mentioned earlier, that they showed toward others and by the things that they taught. And we have the opportunity to do the same. We don't have to be afraid of anything. God's not ever going to break your heart. He's not ever going to break your trust. He's not ever going to attack you. And he's not going to reveal your secrets. That's for him. So you don't have to fear in that. So if you blanked out and didn't listen to anything else, this is kind of the application part of the sermon. So you perk up for a second. So uh, five steps to casting out fear in love. Uh, number one, be born of God. So John chapter 3, the Gospel of John. What does it mean to be born of God? John chapter 3, verse 1, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He said, How can a man be born when he's old? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, Unless one be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So step one, you have to be born again. You have to be born of God. And I believe that's through baptism. Number two, you have to know God. Uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. He answered again and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. This is when Jesus is being tempted by the devil. Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So, uh, in order to know God, you have to intimately understand His Word. Number one. So rather than living on bread, you have to live on the words of God Himself. First uh, Thessalonians 5 the second thing I think you have to do in order to know God is you have to pray. First uh, Thessalonians 5, verse 16. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So the two, two ways to know God, one being, and they're not mutually exclusive, one being you have to know and read and intimately understand His Word, and two, you have to pray in order to get to know God uh, and understand His will for you. So number three, casting out fear and love, you have to show love toward other people. So Galatians 5, uh, one way that you can show love toward other people is through service. And as you serve other people, 
you begin to actually participate in the character of Jesus and the love that he's shown uh, toward, you, toward us, toward you. Um, Galatians 5, verse 13. It's Galatians 3, sorry. For you were called to freedom, brethren, not only... You were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love... Serve one another. Uh, so service is one way that you can show love toward other people. Uh, Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says some pretty weird things uh, that a lot of people at that time were not really all for. And a lot of the Pharisees criticized Jesus for the things he said. But Matthew 5, verse 43, one way you can show love toward other people is service. Another way is through prayer. Uh, prayer for your enemy specifically verse 43 Matthew 5 you've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy but I say to you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of <clears throat> sons of your father who is in heaven for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and he sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous so pray for your enemies is one way you can show love toward others and then finally uh, James chapter 1 is through giving. James 1, <clears throat> verse uh, 17. Every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. This is specifically about God's gift to us, but in order to show love toward other people, we have to reciprocate that same kind of love and be able to bless other people. So, um, three ways so far. Be born of God, know God, and then show love toward other people. Three steps so far to casting out fear and love. Number four, confirm the source of your love. As we mentioned earlier in First uh, uh, John 4, this confirming love. But Matthew chapter 16, uh, verse 15 Oh, wait a minute, Matthew, did I say Matthew? I meant Mark, Mark 16. Mark 16, verse 15. He says, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who is believed and has been baptized will be saved, but he who is disbelieved will be condemned. You have to confirm where this love comes from by preaching this gospel to all things, all people. Um, so the apostles were given this command and we should be uh, also carrying out this command. And then finally, um, the fifth thing is abiding in God. And I'm glad that we sung that song earlier, Abide With Me, when Blake led it. But First John 4, uh, the two steps to abiding in God is being born of God, uh, knowing God, loving other, or loving other people, and knowing God are the two, the two things um, in order to abide with Him. So, five steps casting out fear and love. Be born of God, know God, show love toward other people, confirm the source of your love, and then abide in Him. So, um, maybe there's some fear in your love. Um, maybe you haven't experienced love, God's love in your life, or uh, maybe somebody has broken your heart and you're scared of loving other people or you're scared of loving God because of what He might do. 
but hopefully this lesson this morning has helped you understand that you don't have to be scared of loving God or loving other people um, because God is faithful to his promises and you don't have to be afraid of, of what anyone might say who might accuse you in the court when in the day of judgment fear involves punishment and there's no place for punishment in, in love uh, toward God so if we can help you in any way to cast out this fear in your love this morning you would maybe come forward as we stand and sing